open uh, today with a quote from one of the last great church fathers. He says this, You shall give me the gift of resting in you. Who will grant me this? That you come into my heart and make it drunk, so that I forget my evil deeds and embrace you, my only good. Do not hide your face from me. Let me die to see it, for if I do not see it, I shall die. So we're in the fourth century right now. Um, we've been, uh, we've already learned about the Arian controversy. We've talked about the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. We've met Alexander of Alexandria. We've met Athanasius, both of them great uh, heroes of the faith from the fourth century. And uh, we left off last time at the Council of Constantinople in 381. So if you remember Constantinople, that's where um, you could say Orthodox Trinitarianism finally had its decisive victory over Arianism. And Arianism, of course, didn't go away. It was still always around, still around today. Um, but it, at that council, you could say the Arians were kind of finally out of power for good in the, in the great church at that time. Um, now it's time for us to move on. We're going to go ahead and leave that behind us and go on to another. And, and actually, this will be our final subject for our church history course. And unfortunately, much like we did in the third century, we are going to, again, skip, omit, or leave behind a lot of important events and people in the fourth century. There's, we're in the fourth century still, but there's so many other things that were really big and important key developments uh, that sadly we just don't have time for. Um, I would love to cover those sometime, but unfortunately we do need to bring this course to a close. So again, just encourage you guys to go and, and read up more on this era of our history. There's so much there that's so good and really very, very instructive too. So um, we're going to move on today, and as I said, what we're going to do is we're going to complete our study. It'll be this week and then next week, and I think the third week. Uh, the third week from now, we will um, complete it all together. But in this last portion of our study, we're going to look at one more great church father. Um, and this last church father that we'll look at, he's considered, he's really great. He's considered to be, some people think he's the greatest church father um, after, uh, really, of the patristic era and only surpassed, perhaps, by the apostles themselves. Okay, so let's go ahead and... Uh, get into it, and, and we'll start with today learning about his life. All right, so on November 13th, 354 AD, middle of the 4th century, in North Africa, there's a farmer and his wife, and this farmer, his name is Patricius. He's a pagan. He doesn't believe in Jesus. His wife, however, is a devout Christian. Her name is Monica. Now, Patricius and Monica on this day, November 13th, 354, they welcome a newborn son. As far as I know, their only son. They welcome him into the world, and they name him Aurelius Augustine. And of course, Augustine, I'm sure you've heard his name. Many of you probably know him quite well. Um, he's the great uh, church father of the 4th and 5th centuries. And uh, just in a snapshot, Augustine's life kind of looks like this. So here's the snapshot, and then we'll go into it a little bit more in detail. First of all, as a young child, he learned the gospel from his mother, of course. 
Um, but then, as a young man, in his adolescence, he abandoned the gospel, wandered away in sin and various philosophies. Then, as still a young man, but much older, in his early 30s, he repented, he came back to the faith, and he went on to become an ascetic, I think, effectively a monk. Uh, he became a church bishop, a contender with heresy for a lot of false doctrines, and ultimately, as we said, one of the church's greatest theologians. And perhaps, I think the book that all of us are most familiar with, his most famous book, but we, most of you have heard before, heard of before, some of you may have read it, is Augustine's Confessions. He was super prolifrous. He wrote a lot of books. Um, I don't know if he was as prolifrous as Origen or not, but it seems like what we have available and still exists today is probably more from Augustine than from Origen. Origen was a century earlier. So, um, the Confessions... The Confessions for Augustine is it's his autobiography. And um, in that autobiography, he traces his life from childhood uh, through his youthful wanderings and eventually to his conversion and his early years as a Christian. And uh, today, this is going to be kind of the book that we follow um, to uh, learn a little bit more about his life. So today, as I said, we'll, we'll look at his life um, in brief. And then our next two lessons, we're going to look more closely um, at his theology and some of the issues that he faced. Up here on the map, um, let's see if I can get that a little bigger. Just to give you an idea of where he's from. It's not very big. Okay, Thagast is where he was born. Not too far. Carthage is up here. If you want kind of a bigger reference, Alexandria, Egypt is way over here off the map. And of course, Italy above it, Spain, Gaul up there on the left. So he's from North Africa, but generally the region of Carthage. He's a Western Christian, so as opposed to being Eastern Christian. All right, the Confessions. The Confessions of St. Augustine is a landmark, a literary landmark. It's a landmark not only for Christian literature, but also really for all ancient literature. Um, there's hardly another book before the Confessions that really can compare with it. I would say that um, perhaps since David in the Psalms, you may not be able to find another ancient author who so deeply and transparently uh, searched his own soul in the words that he wrote down for us. Um, the words that I began this morning with, uh, that I quoted, those are words from Augustine's Confessions, one of the opening paragraphs of the book. And if you, you may have noticed that those words are, uh, they're written in the form of a prayer to God. So, and that's in fact how the entire Confessions is written. The whole thing is, is Augustine praying, he's addressing God. And as he prays to God, he's, um, he opens his soul, he's, he's speaking very plainly and openly to God, and he's reflecting on his own past life. He's also reflecting on his present life, his present human nature and the, and the state of his mind and his soul as he petitions God to, to both save him and change him according to God's will. So as a result, the Confessions is really one of the richest books in, in church history. It's one of the richest things that we have. And I would go so far to say that if there are, if there are any books that, uh, in, beside the scripture itself, if there are any books that Christians ought to read, I would say the Confessions is certainly should be on the list. It's one of them. If you haven't read it, um, definitely do. 
Um, I've read it and I'm, I'm reading it again. It's just such a rich and, and really instructive book. You may discover, as you read it too, that um, a lot of the great theologians and teachers that we read today, listen to today, they're, they're influenced by Augustine. And many that have preceded, um, just in recent history, that have preceded the church churches of today, uh, good Bible teaching churches, are Augustinian um, in the way they lean. They've read Augustine, they've read the Confessions, and much of his other work. All right, so let's look at the Confessions. Um, obviously, uh, it's going to be brief today. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a summary and a synopsis. So first of all, the events and people that Augustine deals with in the Confessions. Uh, first and foremost, it's probably best to begin with his mother, Monica. Um, as we mentioned, she was a devout believer, and according to Augustine, she was a key instrument in his own eventual per conversion to faith. Uh, interestingly, she was also uh, key, she was instrumental and influential in her husband's conversion. Her husband was a pagan uh, for most of his life, but... According to Augustine, it seems that her testimony and, and her character so influenced Patricius that shortly uh, uh, before he died, sometime toward the end of his life, he did uh, profess faith in Christ, and then he was baptized as well. So he, he believed before he passed away. Now, throughout Augustine's childhood and young adulthood, uh, Monica labored unceasingly in prayer and a great deal of grief as she continued to ask God for her son's salvation. And that performs a major part of the story of the confessions. Is, is there's his mother, he's, he frequently refers to his mother and, and what she's both saying to him and the fact that he knows she's praying for him and she would share what she prayed and what she felt God was telling her. Um, at one point in Monica's uh, uh, story, um, she's grieved and she's talking to her local bishop there in um, that part of North Africa, and that bishop comforts her, and he says, the son of so many tears could not perish. And he really believed that her praying was going to eventually result in Augustine being saved, and was right. She prayed long, she prayed hard, and eventually she did have the joy of seeing uh, Augustine turn to Christ. She saw him after, his, uh, she lived up to, just after Augustine's baptism, and um, uh, died. She, she died shortly thereafter, so she had the joy of seeing that. Second key theme um, in Augustine's event, uh, confessions, an event and a theme, um, Augustine struggled severely with sexual temptation. And this coincided directly uh, with his abandoning the faith of his mother. Um, it seems that at the tender age of 15, his father had wanted him to have a classical education. So his father sent him to Carthage at age 15, and once there and away from home, um, he was exposed to the temptations of the big city, and he turned headlong into a promiscuous lifestyle. Uh, by age 18, he had a mistress, and about a year after that, they both had a son together. Uh, Augustine says this in his Confessions as he's remembering that time of his life. He says, I could no longer tell the clear skies of love from the dark clouds of lust. The two swirled around me in confusion, and in my youthful ignorance I was sucked down by the eddying currents of vice. Uh, now, by the way, uh, his son, whose name was uh, Deodatus, 
he also eventually got saved and, and believed in Christ before he died. He died shortly after Augustine's mother did. But Augustine's struggle with uh, sexual desire was something that, it, it was really a theme along the entire road to his salvation. Uh, and in fact, it was one of the things that he, that he really felt was even kind of holding him back from embracing the gospel and, and turning to God. Uh, as he, there's a point in his life where he, he gets to feel more and more the conviction of, of the truth of Christianity, and he, he feels drawn to God, and he starts to pray this prayer. In fact, he confessed that he prayed this to God. He said, God, give me chastity, but not yet. And that kind of that represents some of the struggle that he was having. The third event, or the third theme um, in the Confessions, he says uh, he was searching for truth. So sexual desire, it was the strongest desire that Augustine knew before coming to the faith. And um, oddly enough, that he uh, threw himself kind of headlong into that, gave free range to that desire. He began to feel, as many people feel, a keen sense that something was missing, that he still wasn't arriving at the truth, so to speak. So in Carthage, uh, Augustine became a brilliant academic. He, he was a very good student. Uh, after he was a student, he became a gifted teacher. And so kind of alongside of this career in, in intelligent, what you could say, an intellectual career, um, this academic career, he's now beginning to be in on this uh, journey or quest to know what is real truth. Um, what's the truth? And so he begins to explore. Right off the bat, he dismisses Christianity. One of the big difficulties, um, there's a reason for that. He, there's a, he had this difficulty, an intellectual difficulty, which you'll recognize is probably common to a lot of people. And it's this question. It's, where does evil come from? And the reason he didn't like Christianity is because, according to the Christians, God created everything. So Augustine thought, well, that means God created evil. And um, so to begin with, he, he decided to dismiss and reject Christianity. Instead, he embraced, uh, at that time, he embraced Manichaeism. Uh, briefly, very simply, uh, what the Manichaeans believed, they were dualists. We've run into that a little bit before. Um, dualism was, basically what they thought was that both good and evil were eternal, uh, mutually opposed forces. And, and they kind of maybe even almost equal in a sense. And this initially satisfied Augustine. Augustine felt like, okay, that's a good explanation. Um, he spent a very long time as a Manichaean until as he, he began to notice that his deeper questions weren't being answered and the Manichaeans just couldn't give him good answers. Eventually, he grew disenchanted with that uh, cult and that way of thinking, and he rejected it. So he went from Manichaeism and he went uh, first into skepticism, classical skepticism. And then from skepticism, he went to Neoplatonism. Then as a Neoplatonist, Augustine was, what he found is that he, he agreed more and more with, the, with, the, with Plato. But um, as he agreed more and more with Plato, he gradually found, him, found himself kind of beginning to reconsider the claims of uh, the Christian faith. And at this time in his life, he also began to uh, read the Apostle Paul, and he also began to go to church. All right, his conversion. So after a number of years in Carthage, what, what Augustine did is he decided to move to Milan. That was 
the phase where he changed from Manichaeism to skepticism and then Neoplatonism. And in Milan, Augustine met Ambrose. Uh, Ambrose was the bishop of the Church of Milan, and he was he's actually a great church father in his own right. He has a there's a lot of writings of his that exist still today. He was very influential. Now, Ambrose appeared to be um, both intelligent, wise, and persuasive. And uh, he's already famous. He had a really good reputation in the church at that time. And it seems that as Augustine listened to him, he was convinced more and more of the truth of the gospel. Eventually, in Milan, Italy, uh, Augustine comes to the conclusion that the gospel is true. So in his mind, he agrees with, and you could say on a level, kind of believes the gospel. <clears throat> However, uh, in his heart, he confesses that he still struggles. And, um, and so there's a struggle that goes on where on, on the one hand, he's in his mind, he agrees this is true, but on the other hand, he doesn't want to accept it. He doesn't want to believe it in his heart. And that's a, it's a really interesting story there just in itself in that part of the confession. So again, I um, encourage you, if you have time, to, to try and read that. For now, what we're going to do today is we'll just kind of look at the moment where he does uh, finally convert and, and does believe in the gospel. So this is, I'm going to just uh, quote this right out of the confessions. This is um, a bit condensed. I kind of just highlighted some key parts of the event. So he's in Milan, Italy, and um, he's at his own residence, and he says this. He says, as I stirred up my soul... In the privacy of my chamber, that is my heart, I stirred up a great quarrel in the house of my inner being. There was attached to our lodgings a little garden. It was to this garden that the tumult of my heart bore me. There would be no one there to hinder my blazing indictment of myself until it reached an outcome. What outcome you knew, O Lord, but I did not. But when my meditation had dredged up the hidden depths of my, of my being and heaped up in the sight of my heart all the unhappiness I had known, immediately there arose a mighty storm of tears. The rivers of my eyes burst their banks, and I spoke these words, How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, will you be angry with us? Forever? Remember not our iniquities that are of old. I seized my copy of the Apostle Paul, opened it, and read in silence the first heading I cast my eyes upon. Not in riotousness and drunkenness, not in lewdness and wantonness, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and its lusts. No sooner had I finished the sentence that it was as if the light of steadfast trust poured into my heart and all the shadows of hesitation fled away. So uh, Augustine identifies that moment in his life. He was 32 years old. Um, where he finally turned to the gospel. About a year later, he was baptized. Any questions up to this point? Uh, what, do you have, uh, I guess, uh, an estimate of what age you would say um, he came to faith? 32. 32? Okay. Yeah. Um, you said uh, baptized at 32. he read some like philosophy from Plato that kind of like uh, I guess, how would you 
say that like it didn't lead him to faith, right? Right. Um, well, we've, we've kind of visited this team before. Uh -huh. um, if you remember when we talked about Alexandria, uh, there was this rising trend, I guess, among um, uh, sort of the philosophical culture of the area toward back toward Plato and Platonism. And a lot of Platonists did become Christians. And because there were some parallels. I mean, Plato wasn't a Christian, obviously. He didn't really believe in the God of the Bible, per se. But a lot of his ideas ran parallel to biblical ideas. And many of the people of that time, you know, felt like they would start, you know, kind of agreeing with Plato. And it seems like then they would see the claims of the Bible and they would say, well, that's even better. But Plato kind of seemed to prepare them for that. And, it, and, and so it seems like Augustine's experience is kind of a, a common one for that part of history. Okay. Um, a lot of people ended up like that. Thanks. Yeah. Good. All right, thank you. Good questions. Um, so, so much for the events. Uh, that, those are the events in the, in the Confessions up to his point of conversion. He goes on from there into his early life as a Christian. Um, as I mentioned, a little bit later on, after his baptism, his mother dies. Then a little bit later, still after that, his son dies. Um, and he, uh, he then goes on into a life of, you could say, asceticism. He, he, starts to choose, he decides he's going to be single um, and uh, just sort of follow and, and worship the Lord. And so... Um, and then the confessions kind of end there. So the confessions really end with him uh, thinking and sort of uh, examining himself before God and really looking into his own soul as he's continuing to grow and be uh, sanctified um, as a Christian now. So, but what are the main ideas? This is the, the confessions are really valuable not just for the story, but especially for uh, the idea ideas that are kind of contained in there, um, the doctrines that Augustine believes in. There's a lot that's there. There were three major ideas that really stood out to me, that really kind of um, stood forward in bold belief. Three things that are doctrines that Augustine believes and really are thematic in his whole theology, his whole view of, of God and, and humanity. So, I'll just give those to you real quickly. Uh, first of all, number one for Augustine is total depravity. So Augustine confesses himself to be utterly depraved. He, um, he considers himself to have there be nothing good in and of himself. And it's very clear if you read the Confessions and his other works, that that's the way he sees it. He recounts in the Confessions, he recounts a story from his youth when uh, he and a group of other young miscreants, so to speak, stole a bunch of pears. And he says that they didn't even steal those pears to eat, really, themselves, but they were just, they stole it for the fun of stealing it, and then they fed them to pigs. He did, they did eat some. He says this, quote, We did eat some of them, but only for the pleasure of tasting forbidden fruit. My evil was loathsome, and I loved it. I did not love what I hoped to gain by rebellion. It was rebellion itself that I loved. So Augustine is one of these theologians who can see that deeply. He's like, you know, it's not just the fact that we do bad things, that we break the law, or that we, you know, feel tempted to do. It's like we like breaking the law for its own sake. He admits that. He confesses that about the state of his soul. Augustine's conclusions on the state of the human soul are, um, are really everywhere in this book, The Confessions. I really like this statement toward the end of the book. 
it kind of summarizes it. He says this, thus, quote, thus, even thus is the human soul, thus blind and sick, mange-ridden, and, and unsightly. Total depravity. Augustine believes there's no good in human nature. Doctrine number two. This idea of true desire. Augustine viewed his own life as a quest, um, more or less, to satisfy desire. And uh, ultimately, according to him, true desire, ultimate satisfaction, is to be found nowhere else but in God himself. However, he admits this reality, and there's this reality that because of sinfulness, temporal desires for pleasure are at war with the desire for God. Uh, he says this, quote, There is a joy which is not given to the impious, but to those who freely worship you. You yourself are their joy, speaking to God, remember, he's praying. And even this is the blessed life, to rejoice before you, in you, because of you. As for those who think there is another life, they are chasing after another joy and not the true one. So he's got this idea that really we're, as uh, human souls, we are ultimately satisfied with God, but our sinfulness drives us to constantly try to be satisfied in other things. And he lives with this very conscious um, recognition of that reality. And even as, a, even as a believer, he's constantly questioning himself before God. Am I doing this because I want pleasure in you, God? Or am I doing this because I'm trying to replace you with something else? That's a theme throughout uh, his later writings in the Confessions. So true desire. True desire is satisfied in God alone. Doctrine number three for Augustine. The sovereign grace of God. So in contrast to the total depravity of the human soul, Augustine insists that salvation and all good or righteousness that comes about in a person is only because it is initiated by God. So no one has any good in themselves that leads them to God. God himself is the one who puts good there, gives them the right, their righteousness that draws them to himself. According to Augustine, that uh, left to ourselves, we would never desire God or seek him. Left to ourselves, we would uh, really just continue in blind ignorance. He says this, quote, You, God, you called and cried aloud and shattered my deafness. You flashed and blasted like lightning and routed my blindness. You cast your fragrance and I drew breath. It is your doing, goes on in another place, it is your doing that those who have never been drunkards are not drunkards. And your doing also that those who are drunkards are so no longer. You're doing also that both should know by whom this was done. And so the whole work of salvation, Alright, so that is the confessions in a nutshell. Now, these <coughs> themes, these doctrinal themes, really, as I mentioned, they, they emerge not only in the confessions, but they emerge as major themes in the rest of Augustine's work, of the theological works and writings and letters. And um, he becomes famous very quickly, he becomes enormously influential, and his writings at, at that time in the church get a lot of publication and a lot of um, a currency, they a lot of circulation. They start going around and people start to encounter them. Now, there was a British monk named Pelagius, and Pelagius 
in the early 5th century, it seems, so this is when Augustine is kind of a middle-aged or older man, uh, Pelagius comes in contact with, he encounters some of Augustine's work, he starts to hear Augustine's doctrine. And when Pelagius heard Augustine's doctrine, he reacted. And Pelagius believed that what Augustine was saying, effectively, is he was excusing Christians from responsibility for their sin. And so Pelagius started to write and to teach um, in contradiction, he tried to refute Augustine. Now, ultimately, where Pelagius's logic led him was effectively to reject the idea of original sin and a sin nature in mankind. So, and uh, what followed this, uh, Pelagius had some followers. In fact, a whole bunch of people kind of jumped on the bandwagon with him. And what came out of it was another firestorm of uh, Controversies. The church was again embroiled in controversy. Pelagius is saying there's no sin nature, and we uh, attain to salvation by our own merits. Effectively, what he's saying. And then Augustine, of course, was forced to respond to this. So that will be our story for next time, and we'll get into that next week.